Well, good morning to you. I'm going to exercise my voice a little bit here this morning and see if we can get it working. But I would ask you to, uh, as much as it's possible, just to forget about the sound and tone and all of that kind of thing. And perhaps this morning we could just focus in on on what we're going to share together this morning. I've had something that's been uh, basically visiting me for quite some time. It's an old... It's a very old uh, subject and concept, but it uh, has been visiting me in a very, I'd say, specific and new way, and that has to do with the subject of idolatry. Idolatry. And uh, I want to begin this morning with, I'm going to reference uh, various passages of Scripture, so if you have your Bible, you might like to uh, get ready to use it this morning, but I want to begin with a couple of questions that we often hear uh, asked, and one is... Um, when people are talking to national security figures, I have had con- or heard conversations recently on television to national security people, and the question often is posed, what worries you? What worries you? So let me ask you this morning, what worries you in this very dangerous world that we're living in and these uh, difficult-to-navigate times? We're living in... We're living in very dangerous times. What worries you? What concerns you? If you don't like the word worry, what concerns you? This is another question that's often asked to those individuals I referenced is, what keeps you awake at night? And I don't want anything to keep you awake at night. May your sleep be sweet and restful. But it's a phrase that means what really is of ultimate concern to you. What keeps you awake at night? Now, there is one thing, just one thing. And I like to, I kind of like to reduce things down to the lowest common denominator to find out if there's something, you know, that is at the foundation of things. And I find that there's a, this is foundational, it is the subject and the issue of idolatry. And before I move to a passage of scripture, I want to, uh, I want to just say without going into any detail, I think you know the details as well as I. This is a very political season. We've just come through in our country in the last fall, a political season. Only our political seasons last for a couple of months. And there are some countries in the world, we won't mention any names, there are some countries in the world whose political season lasts, I don't think it ever ends, it's just ongoing. And so our neighbors are going through a political season, and we uh, like to, neighbors, we're good neighbors, so we like to look over the fence, right, and make sure what our neighbors are doing. And uh, so in the area of politics, and I just want to say that it is very apparent, I think, to all of us that the dishonesty that is manifested in politics, for example, is astounding and shameful, utterly unbelievable, the level of dishonesty where individuals will pick and choose issues, an issue that they don't think favors their particular campaign, they will choose to ignore an issue that they think would uh, disfavor an opponent's campaign. They will shout it from the rooftops. They will take a portion of a sentence, leaving the rest of the sentence unstated, and that portion maybe promotes their case or cause. It is unbelievable. Now, um, the subject of religion. The reason that there are so many different religions in the world is because human beings have determined what they prefer, what their preferences are, even when it comes to the pages of scripture there's no uh, there's no question that certain denominational 
uh, leaders tend to choose and emphasize certain portions of Scripture while de-emphasizing others. We see that in all kinds of religious thinking is an emphasis of that which tends to promote the special teachings that we have, whereas those passages that would tend to maybe bring them into question, we, we, we tend to redact them or edit them out. Well, the press, the press, unbelievable the way the press presents stories. They don't present the story to us just unvarnished, but they present it to us with a skew, with a twist to it, or with a tone to it. And I won't go into all the details. I'm sure we're all familiar with these. There's an emphasis on certain things with certain press. One uh, particular uh, network news, for example, may uh, emphasize the, a, certain, a certain point of view. Another one will emphasize an alternative point of view. So we have all these kinds of things. And what I want to say this morning is that all of this, all of this, whether it's politics, religion, press, whatever it might be, the law, we can go on and on and on, it all has to do with idolatry. And idolatry, the idea that individuals, human beings, tend to place ideas and thoughts and actions in a premier place in our minds and hearts. And we place those in a high priority that is reserved only for the things of God. In other words, the things that God must teach us and instruct us on in matters of truth we tend to place other things there ourselves according to our own preferences. And that is idolatry. A little example, I brought a little example of this, which is, uh, can you, anybody remember 1994? Can you go back 1994, just a few years ago? Uh, there was a congressional hearing in Washington, and they were interviewing or questioning executives from the large tobacco companies in the United States of America, all the different ones, and they had them all lined up. Maybe, I don't know, they had six or seven men lined up. And they were asking them a question having to do with tobacco and whether or not it was addictive and whether they believed it to be addictive. Pat's going to play this little clip. I brought the little video clip this morning, and Pat's going to play that for us now. Let's listen to this. Let me uh, begin my questioning on the matter of uh, whether or not nicotine is addictive. Let me ask you first, and I'd like to just go down the row, uh, whether each of you believes uh, that nicotine is not addictive. I heard virtually all of you touch on it, and just yes or no. Do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. Mr. Johnston. Uh, Congressman, Cigarettes and nicotine clearly do not meet the classic definitions of addiction. There is no intoxication. Right. We'll, we'll take that as a no. And again, time is short. If you could just, I think each of you believe nicotine is not addictive. We just would like to have this for the record. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And I, too, believe that nicotine is not addictive. So you may remember that. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? You remember that. Sharon remembers it. Now, now you may... <laughs> we, we, I remember when we watched that uh, in 1994, and, you know, <laughs> we said, how is it possible for a human being 
of reasonable intelligence to <laughs> sit there and say, I believe that nicotine is not addictive. It's counterintuitive. It makes no sense to say that. Unless you have a vested interest in it. See, this is idolatry. That's exactly an example of idolatry. The tobacco industry is the uh, lifeblood financially of these men and many, many others who depend upon them. These are the leading men in their companies. These are the chief CEOs of their companies. These are very intelligent human beings. But they have a vested interest, and their vested interest is such that it would not be good for their business for them to say that they believe that tobacco is addictive. So therefore, they must find a way to say that tobacco is not addictive. So then the brain trust gets to work on it and says now, and, and, and this is where redacting and blacking out and ignoring certain thoughts and, and emphasizing other thoughts, and they find a way because they're very intelligent. I'm picking on them as using them as an example, but we find this in everything. You find it in religion. You find it in politics. You find it in the law. You find it everywhere you look. So these men, then they scurry around knowing that they will be asked a question such as this, can we find a way to say that uh, tobacco is not addictive? And so their ingenuity and their brain trust, um, you know, the one man very, you know, I mean, he's absolutely convinced that it's not addictive. It does not meet the, the definition of, of addictive, he says. Now, he's convinced that it doesn't, but you see, you, you have to strain yourself in order to arrive at such a conclusion. And you do that because there's an idol has been set up in the heart that compromises the intelligence and the understanding. And I want to say this morning that this is what's happening in our world, not just in our society, but in our world. And I want to read from Exodus this morning, beginning in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. And I'll read the first five verses. It says in my Bible, then God spoke all these words. And it just rivets my attention. The concept that God, the creator of all things, the one who is eternally existent in the heavens, actually has spoken and has communicated with mankind. And the text says, then God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And you shall have no other gods before me or besides me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image to worship of or any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them or serve them. The whole idea of idolatry was that human beings would fashion with their own hands some likeness of something. They would do it out of wood or out of stone or metal of some kind and they would fashion something with their own hands, according to their own preferences, and then they would confer upon that which they had created themselves, divinity or special powers. Now that is um, an idea we have that is, we, we think that's just in, in antiquity. That's in the ages past, but that's ever present with us today. And as human beings, we are continually creating something when our thoughts, in our decisions, in our actions, 
We are continually creating something that we prefer. It could be an interpretation of something. But I don't prefer that interpretation. I prefer this other interpretation. It's an idol that we have set up. To the extent that that idea or that thought that we elevate is not consistent with the mind of, with the mind of God and is not consistent and true to the mind of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we refuse to be instructed by him on this thing. Instead of his instruction, we promote our own thinking into that high place. It's idolatry. It's absolute idolatry. That's what it is. And we are no different than these foolish men that gave evidence in 1994 in a congressional hearing in the United States of America. I want to read from Ezekiel chapter 14. In verse number 1, it says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. This is Ezekiel the prophet. And so the certain elders of Israel came and sat before me, and says, he said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts, these leaders of Israel. They have set up their idols in their hearts. They have put the stumbling block of their iniquities before their faces. Another translation says that they have put up those idols in their heart that caused them to stumble and fall into iniquity or sin or error or wrongdoing. This is the nature of idolatry. I'm going to change just to a different focus of Scripture for a moment, and I'm going to read to you a portion from Second Chronicles, and then a very short verse from Zechariah, Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. Listen to these. It says, it says, For the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord run, true and, uh, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are blameless toward him. The eyes of the Lord, the awareness of God, Jehovah. Run, the language says, runs to and fro throughout the whole earth, everywhere, not one place excluded. So God's awareness, God's knowledge, God's eyes, if you like, uh, is everywhere scanning throughout the earth all the time, looking for a human being, looking for a man, looking for a woman, looking for a person. It says whose hearts are blameless toward him. Now, a heart that is blameless towards God is a heart that has no idols set up in it. See, what's been coming to me is that we sometimes have idols uh, set up in our hearts and minds, personalities. We have idols established there, but we don't know that we have them there. We don't think we do. If someone said, do you, have, do, you, do you have any idols? And this is basically our consideration this morning. Do I have an idol set up in my heart? Oh, no. I'm not an idolater. But sometimes we do. We do. Sometimes those idols that we set up manifest themselves in a kind of a stubbornness within us and a refusal to accept that which is true. 
a refusal to listen to evidence that is contrary to what our preferences are. And we look at a person like that sometimes. Maybe it's ourselves. And we don't see it in ourselves. We see it in others. And we say, how can that person be so stupid? Stupid. Well, they're not stupid. Probably intelligence level is as, is as high as anyone's. In fact, the more intelligent a person is, the better they are to construct formidable idols. So it's not that they're stupid. It's that they refuse to listen to anything or anyone that gives a different point of view than the one that they hold. And God, this is God's government. This is God's world. And he is sovereign over it all. And he sends his spirit throughout the earth to look for an individual whose heart is right before him, righteous before him. Why does he look for that person? Because he wants to show himself strong on their behalf. He wants to manifest himself through them. He wants to do that. And he's looking for someone whose heart is right before him. And what is a a person whose heart is right before him? is a person in whose heart God is enthroned and no one else or nothing else is. That's it. It says an idol is anything, whether it's animate or inanimate, that usurps the place of God in man's thoughts, his decisions, or his actions, in anything, in any subject, in any subject. We think that it has to do just with religious subjects. No, it doesn't. Any subject. All truth belongs to God. He is sovereign over it all. And truth in anything is what God delivers and inspires us and influences us to believe and to accept. And anything that usurps that place is defined as an idol. Now, I'm going to change from that, and I want to come now to a different portion of Scripture. And I want to look at two individuals uh, together this morning. One is uh, Esau, and the other is his twin brother, Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Now, I want to look at these two men because I believe that in the uh, passages talking and and revealing them to us, there's a great, de- great deal that we can learn about this. And I want to begin in the New Testament in Romans, chapter 9 and verse 13. In a passage of Scripture that has perplexed theologian for, theologians for hundreds of years, and people uh, wonder at this because, listen to what it says, Romans 9 and 13, as it is written, and he's referring to Old Testament Scripture, God speaking, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. God speaking, and is written in Malachi, for example, and other places, and it says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Well, how is that fair? How is that fair? Even before they were born, prophetically, it was said that the elder would serve the younger. The elder would serve the younger. And there's a great deal in Romans that deals with the sovereignty of God. An election, and I'm firmly convinced it has been misunderstood largely, but nevertheless, I won't get into that right now. I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now, there's something about these two individuals that 
God notices and takes takes note of. And in one case, it says, "I've loved, I love, I love him." And there's something in the other manifested that God says, "I hate." What is that? Well, you know, it's very interesting because when they were born, these two twin boys, when they were born, when they came into the world, uh, Esau was born first, firstborn. And Esau was born, and, and the name Esau, he was given the name Esau because he was born, when he was born and came into the world, he was hairy, hairy, almost like he was wearing a fur coat. <laughs> and so the name Esau means hairy. And then, uh, following Esau, coming into the world is Jacob. And when Jacob was born, he was holding on to his brother's heel. So Esau was born first, Jacob second. Jacob is holding on to his brother Esau's heel as if, and, and all those who witnessed the birth said he was trying to bring the older brother back so that he could be born first because he wants the blessing of the firstborn. And so he was called Jacob, and Jacob means heel catcher. Heel catcher also means supplanter. See, the idea of Jacob is, they called him Jacob because they had the idea uh, in the circumstances of the birth that the one born second was trying to reel in or bring back the firstborn so that the second could actually be first, you see, and trying to supplant the first. So they named him Jacob. And so you have Esau, Harry, Jacob, the supplanter, the heel catcher. Now God's saying in Romans, as it's well, he's saying in the Old Testament, but it's recorded in Romans. God says he loves the Jacob, the supplanter, the heel catcher, and he hates Esau. And what does that mean? Why would that be said? What we know about these two men, these two uh, individuals, if we look at them just from a natural standpoint, I can pretty much guarantee you and assure you that we would tend to favor Esau. I would, because Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. Esau was a, a rugged individual. He'd be the kind of guy that, you know, he, he, he would be really great with a group of men. If you were playing sports or something like that, which one would you choose for your team? You'd be picking on Esau. Jacob, go and read a book somewhere. Your mother's calling you. Jacob, your mother's calling you, right? Jacob was quieter, you know, more reticent and so on, and he was always kind of scheming and thinking and planning and so on and so forth. But Esau was right out there. So from a natural standpoint, I think we would prefer Esau over Jacob, but God does not. In fact, the language is strong, and God says, I hate Esau, I love Jacob. And I've looked at this and am convinced that the reason for that has to do entirely with the foreknowledge of God with regards to these two individuals, the foreknowledge and what they would do and how they would respond in times of extremity. You know what extremity is? Extremity is when you're, you know, you've been, you know that a drowning man and he's reaching for something. And he will grasp a straw, we say. What does a person do in the extreme moments of their life where they're called upon to make a decision and they're in the ultimate extreme? For example, they may think that they're 
in peril and about to die, what kind of decision would they make in that moment? And there's a huge difference between Esau and Jacob in terms of the decisions that they would make in the ultimate moment of decision. And the decision that Esau would make is a decision that God would hate and despise. Whereas the decision that Jacob would make in that moment would be a decision that God would love and prosper. But from the external looking at them, you and I would have the opposite point of view. And let's look at the scripture and and understand a little bit about this and the role of idolatry in setting up an idol in the heart. And so we visit Genesis chapter 25, and I'm going to begin at verse number 29. And we're going to talk first about Jacob, and Esau rather. And it says, Jacob was boiling pottage or some kind of stew, vegetable stew, one day when Esau came from the field and was faint with hunger. And Esau said to Jacob, I beg of you, let me have some of that red lentil stew to eat, for I am faint and famished. And that is why his name was called Edom. He became the father of the Edomites, and having to do with the color red. And Jacob answered, here's this uh, conniver, this usurper. And Jacob answered, then sell me today your birthright, that is the rights of a firstborn son. Now, the rights of a firstborn son, this is God's idea. This is basically a a very sacred right. And so Jacob is saying, then sell me your birthright. And Esau said, see here, I am at the point of death. Now, see, this is the point of extremity. He's in an extreme set of circumstances. Esau is in an extreme set of circumstances. And what does he do in this circumstance? Forget about all the wonderful things about his athleticism and, and ruggedness. What does he do now in extreme circumstances where he says, I am at the point of death, what good does this birthright do to me now? What profit is the birthright to me now? I'm at the point of death. And so Jacob said, swear to me today that you are selling it to me. And he swore to Jacob and sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, And he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau scorned his birthright as beneath his notice. And the eyes of the Lord that scan throughout the earth continuously, constantly, all the time, is not thrilled with what he sees in Jacob at this moment, but he is completely dissatisfied with what he sees in Esau. To give preference to his own desires to give preference to something that is just physical food because he's so famished that he thinks he might faint. The lusts of his flesh are more important to him than the things of God. And this is why it would be said prophetically that God hates Esau, because of this. Are we like Esau? Do we place the lusts of our flesh, the desires of our flesh, ahead of the sovereign things of God, the precious things of God? So Jacob left, and he went into a far country, and we know how he married there in Laban's country. And I want to go to Genesis 32, and beginning at verse 3. And we find now Jacob's return to the region of Israel, 
Jacob's return. And he is very fearful about his return because of his dealings with Esau. Esau despises Jacob, and we can understand that. Esau despises uh, Jacob, and, and Jacob fears that Esau will kill him. So it says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, or the country of Edom. And he commanded them, Say this to my brother Esau. Your servant Jacob says this, I have been living temporarily with Laban and have stayed there till now. And I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, men servants, and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find mercy and kindness in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau. And now he is on the way to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. So we went and talked to Esau and Esau is coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. And Jacob, Jacob is just shaking like a leaf. He's petrified. But he's a bit of a shyster. He's a conniver. He's a schemer. He is a usurper. And so now what he's trying to do is he's trying to scheme and figure out a way. Because he's going to go back there. He's going to be met by his brother Esau. And how is he going to survive the confrontation? It says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people. Now, here's his scheming. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two groups, thinking, this is Jacob thinking, if Esau comes to the one group and smites it, then the other group, which is left, will escape. See, he's still scheming, planning. His preferences still dominate his life. So in that sense, he still has idols established in his own heart, Jacob. Now in verse number 9, now Jacob resorts to prayer. He's going to pray. But he's still, he's going to pray, but he's still putting confidence in his own resources. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your people and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercy and loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I passed over this Jordan long ago, many years ago, when I was going east. I crossed the Jordan. I only had my staff in my hand. Now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray you, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and smite us all, the mother with the children. And you said, I will surely do you good and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And Jacob lodged there that night and took from what he had with him as a present for his brother Esau. So he still now, even in this, as he is getting towards his his extremity, he is still taking actions in a scheming way and putting his confidence in those actions, still. So in this present now that he wants to send to Esau, he has 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 she-donkeys, and 10 donkey colts. And he put them into the charge of his servants. Every drove, now listen to this now, listen to this. This guy is not finished yet. He put them into the charge of his servants. Every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, this is Jacob, the schemer, Pass over before me, go ahead of me, pass over before me. Put a space between drove and drove. So it's like a big parade. And you're going to have spaces. Put lots of space between each drove. 
so it will appear longer. And Esau will have to contemplate it over a greater period of time. And he commanded the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom you belong, where are you going, and whose are the animals before you, then you shall say they are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he, Jacob, is behind us. <laughs> He's behind us. He's coming. And so he commanded the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, This is what you are to say to Esau when you meet him. And say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. Still the works of his own ingenuity. These were the idols that Jacob still had set up within his heart. This is not why God loved Jacob. This is not why God loved Jacob. But it's not over yet. But he rose up that same night and took to his two wives, his two women servants, and his eleven sons, and passed over the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the brook also. He sent over all that he had. He sent over all that he had, even to his most beloved wife. He sent them all over. And he stayed there by himself. Now something's happening to Jacob. And he's entering to the ultimate extremity of his life. Let's see what's going to happen with the idols now. And also he sent over all that he had. And in verse 24, and Jacob was left alone all by himself, having sent everything that he so cherished on ahead of him. Sent it all. Almost as if Esau, you can have it all. It says Jacob was left alone, only he wasn't alone. See, we're never alone. And it's good for us to come to a place in our life where we come to the extremity, where we feel that we're all alone, been forsaken by all. It's good for us to feel and put no confidence in anything or anyone because no one is with me. I have nothing to put confidence in. That's a good thing, if it results in what we're about to read now. It says, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man wrestled with him. He was all by himself. But this man wrestled with him. I don't know all the details of this. I would like to know more about it. Volumes have been written on the angel, who, who the angel was. Supernatural person that wrestled with Jacob. But there's more to this than just physical. And in fact, there's very little about this. Some of it is physical, but a great deal of this is spiritual. It says, And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, they're wrestling. And when the man saw he did not prevail against, against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then this man wrestling with Jacob said, Let me go, for day is breaking. But Jacob said, and this is, think of this as spiritual now. Think of this as the, the soul, the heart of a man who believes that he's in great difficulty and in extremity and he has nothing to depend upon and he has now given up all his own resources. He's just given them up now. And he is having a communion with God and wrestling, if you like, with the creator of the universe or the emissary sent by the creator of the universe or with the minister of heaven 
He is wrestling. And the minister of heaven, the representative of heaven says, let me go. Day is about to break. Let me go. Let me go. And in this wrestling, Jacob says, I will not let you go. See, this is extremity. What did Esau do in his extremity? What is Jacob now doing in his extremity? He said, I will not let you go unless you declare a blessing upon me. In other words, I absolutely require heaven's blessing. I cannot survive without it. All this confidence that I've placed in myself up until now means nothing to me. Now, all these idols I am expelling from my heart, I am expelling them. And I won't let you go unless you bless me. This is intercession. This is intercession. That's what this is. Now the man asked him, this is the angel or the representative of God, or could it be Messiah Jesus in a pre-existent form? I, I don't know all the answers to that. I don't think anyone does. So let's not go and answer questions that we don't have the answer to fully, right? Let's just wait until the answer is given to us. And the man asked him, what is your name? Here's the question, what is your name? And it says in the Amplified, in shock of realization, whispering, Jacob said, my name is Jacob. My name is Jacob. He is saying, my name is Sublanter. My name is Schemer. My name is Trickster. My name is Swindler. My name is Jacob. And this is the ultimate eviction of the idols from his heart and mind. Now the representative from heaven says, your name shall be called no more Jacob, that is Suplanter, but your name now will be called Israel. You have a new name. And that new name is Israel and it means contender with God. The one who contends with God. For you have contended and have power with God and with men. And you have prevailed. <coughs> if someone has power with God, they will also and always have power with men. That's the key to having power with men. Or power in the natural realm is to have power with God. So then Jacob asked him, tell me, I pray you, what is your name? But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And the angel of God declared a blessing on Jacob there. And Jacob called, uh, called the name of the place Peniel. Peniel. And you know what that means? Literally, it means the face of God. He called the name of the place the face of God. He said, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is spared and not snatched away. And as he passed Peniel, Listen to these words. The sun rose upon him. The sun rose upon him, both literally and spiritually. <laughs> the sun rose up from the east upon him. The sun of righteousness arose upon him. And he was limping because of his thigh. You see, he carried with him, as he would go on with the blessing, he carried, he carried with him the touch that he received while he was agonizing and wrestling with heaven, craving and needing the blessing of God and refusing to let go until the blessing was given. But there was a manifestation that he, of that, a manifestation that would go with him forever for the rest of his days. And that's why the scripture tells us that God hated Esau because he refused to relinquish the idol from his heart. 
and he was willing to allow that idol to persist and stand, even if it meant giving away uh, the birthright that was a God-given blessing to him. Jacob, on the other hand, came in his extremity. He came to a place where he was willing to give it all away and engage in heaven in a spiritual prayer, wrestling with God's representative and refusing to let go and placing no confidence in his own schemes. Let me close with these words. Then I'll ask Ruth to come. I'm just going to read them. It says, May the searching eyes of the Lord find no idol of any kind in my heart today as he scans me. May the searching eyes of the Lord find no idol of any kind in my heart today as he scans me. If he finds an idol, he will pass over me. If he finds an idol in my heart, I won't, I won't be able to pray effectively because he will not hear me. He will not hear me. He says in Ezekiel 14, he will not hear me. Shall I be inquired of by them? He says, the answer is negative. But if no idol, if he finds no idol as he scans my heart, if no idol, he will show himself strong in my behalf. May the Lord show himself strong in your behalf and in our behalf. As he finds no idol of any kind in our heart. Amen.